chapter 8 and 9 this morning. I just want to say, uh, side point, uh, thanks Mike for leading us and leading us in praying for church plants. Um, I almost wanted to shout out loud, let's pray for Salem as well. We are trusting God to plant a church in Salem, um, and Mike uh, is leading that, and uh, will be leading the team, uh, certainly with the help of his wife Enza and others, and, and just to be praying for God's hand in that. We're seeking to follow the Lord. We're not doing this because we think we somehow are great and able to do this. We're seeking to follow the Lord and be faithful. Uh, so we need, we need His grace at every moment. You can be praying for God to raise a team up. Um, I would, my personal prayer is that God would, would grant two or three uh, solid families to, from our church to go with Mike, as well as uh, families from the area and families from our sister churches in Sovereign Grace that there would be a strong team. So please pray that way. Things will be developing over this year. And uh, heads up, uh, in February at our potluck, that Sunday will be the first of uh, many monthly interest meetings for this church plant. So we, the way those interest meetings will start is they'll be general, just about church plantings, about, uh, about Salem. So uh, it'll be edifying for all of us whether we end up on that plant or not. And then as time goes on, uh, we'll, the focus will narrow on the actual church plant. So please be praying and participating by coming to that potluck and enjoying that time as Mike will present to us at the end of the potluck. Well, we're in the series in Revelation. And we're again not doing this because uh, we're fascinated with some speculation about end times or we have some sort of pet doctrine as a church that gets backed up by this book. We're in this book because it occupies 22 chapters of the New Testament. And we as a church are committed to uh, living under the Word of God, the entirety of the Word of God, and that means teaching and preaching, proclaiming the Word of God. That's simply why we're in Revelation. But we also know that there are, is benefit from His Word, and each book of the Bible has different aspects, different things that it brings to God's people. And this wonderful book of the Bible really helps us to learn how to follow Jesus as, as the one who overcomes the world. Really, that's what it's about. Following Jesus, the one who overcomes the world. Uh, and we learn about that through this marvelous book. I trust that you're being encouraged by it as we go. Um, as you turn to chapter 8 and 9, um, let me ask if anyone here uh, has seen the movie Darkest Hour. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily recommend it one way or the other, but movies, uh, like all good stories, good stories have redemptive themes in, in them that we can learn. And so in our culture, in movies and in literature, there are many redemptive stories. I would argue that the Apostle Paul and others uh, leveraged those stories. They were aware of those stories. They engaged those stories and their benefits for their own lives as well as uh, in their, their mission. So uh, tapping into good stories is, is a biblical thing. The, the, this book itself is just full of redemptive stories. Anyhow, Darkest Hour. Um, it's about Winston Churchill. It's come out recently. Uh, it's about this man, this key leader during World War II, uh, who really in many ways uh, was essential in the war. If it hadn't been for him and his decisions, uh, we probably would have lost, the Allies would have lost to the Nazis and, and their allies. And we would live in a very different world if it were not for Winston Churchill's leadership. So the, the, the movie is about Winston Churchill. Do you know how many movies actually there have been made about Winston Churchill? About 70. There are about 70, not counting documentaries and so forth, on Winston Churchill. Do you know how many movies have been made actually about World War II itself? 2,000 I counted. I counted 2,000. I actually did the work, went on Wikipedia, and counted the ones that have been made 
on World War II, and it, and it was, uh, I believe it was over 2,000 movies on World War II. Why? Why would you make 2,000 movies about something? Why would there be 70 movies about this key leader of World War II? Well, because World War II was just an amazing time in history. It was an epic battle, really, between good and evil, wasn't it? And it teetered on the edge of falling to evil. And in many ways, we've discovered actually more and more over the years that it, that it really was on the edge at many points of falling to the, the, the evil powers under Nazi, Nazism. And so, it's this epic story about the struggle between good and evil. And, and, and whether the movie is about Winston Churchill, some great leader who was decisive, or about some private in a foxhole who's just trying to not lose his mind amidst the horrors of war, it's a story that's worthy to be told because of what it's about. This epic struggle. And so as you delve into the, these sorts of things, I think you recognize this is, this is a story that's worth being told even 2,000 times and even 70 times and so forth. Well, why do I say all that? Because we are going through a book that is actually the ultimate epic story. The ultimate epic battle between good and evil. It's a story about God and His work to, to work out His plans to conquer evil, to rescue His beleaguered people, to vindicate the rights, and to have a decisive and final victory that restores the world to what it should be. So it's understandable that in telling this story, there can be a depth and even a complexity and richness to it. I say all that because as we go through Revelation, you may feel like there's 2,000 movies packed in just these 22 chapters. And that's because this story is so epic. And there is so much to it. It is so, it is so rich. And so I just say that uh, to help us understand, to help us just have the patience to listen and learn and take our time. To have patience with me as I do my best to tell this story and to lead us through it. And at the bottom of it all, actually, to, to recognize that God has a point to all this. He wants us to understand His key truths and what He's doing. And ultimately, as we, as we follow the One who overcomes, that we ourselves would overcome. That's the point here. Um, and, and I just say that by way of introduction as we go. This morning I'm going to do something a little different than what I normally do. Uh, I'm going to read the, the passage itself a little later. I want to take one of the points, so if you have the notes you'll see one of the points up front says cycles. I want to take the first point to just talk about some of the structures of Revelation. It's a little more teaching, but with the purpose of helping you understand how this book is laid out so that you can better enjoy it, better understand it, and really better apply it. Um, but we need God's help, don't we? In every way. So let's pray and ask His blessing on our time before His Word. Lord, thank You for this book. And in all of its depth and all of its challenge, Lord, it is good. And it's intended for blessing for us and really Your whole church throughout time. Help us to enter into this story. Help us to understand it. Help us to be instructed by it that we might learn how to live in it. For we are part of this story. And You care for us by giving us Your Word. So help me this morning to teach and lead. Help me to be economical uh, in my words. Uh, but to ultimately point to You 
Help us all to listen. Spirit of God, thank You that You're here with us. Fill us, fill me with Your power to grasp Your Word, to understand it, and be transformed as well, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. First, I want to talk about the structure of Revelation. I think it's important to understand how Revelation is structured. It's important to understand that this is not a modern history book. This is not a book that's like a book you might pick up on the history of the world. It's not a simple chronological story. It's more like a, a fantasy allegorical dream. That's really what it's more like. It's, it's more like a dream, more like an allegory in some ways, though it, it, I wouldn't call it an allegory actually. But it's more like that than a modern history book. I, I think that's important to get. And I want to convince you as we go through that that's the case. I think we make mistakes when we treat it like a modern history book. Often we bring to the Bible these preconceived notions of what literature should be like based on our experience of modern literature. The Bible is not modern literature. And so understanding how it's structured, how it's done, is really important. This is apocalyptic literature. And it's very similar to other apocalyptic literature in Scripture. That's a big word, maybe a new word. It, it literally means revelation. Uh, apocalyptic means re revelation from the Greek. But it's a type of literature that reveals things about God. It, it reveals the, uh, typically a struggle between good and evil and how God's faithful people overcome. That's what apocalyptic literature does. And it tends to have this kind of allegory dream aspect to it. So things are symbolic and they represent things. We see it in the rest of Scripture. We see other places. The book of Daniel, the latter half of Daniel, very similar to, to how Revelation is in terms of images and repetition of images and things that symbolize things. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it in Zechariah. Portions of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, and Haggai. All these other books have apocalyptic literature. And if you look at those books, you'll see that the way that they go about things is different than other books. You'll see the, there are these pictures, these visions, that, these revelations from God that are shown to the prophet, uh, to the person who's the author of the book, and they represent things. And they, these visions are uh, cyclical. Okay, so there'll be a vision one way, and then later on it, it'll be given a different way. I'll give you an example. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. There's a representation of God's work among the kingdoms of this world. In the first vision, Daniel sees a statue. And the statue is composed of different elements throughout the statue. Then a, a big stone gets thrown against the statue and becomes a mountain. That's his vision. Later on in chapter 7, he has a vision of these beasts that come out of the sea and, and they fight and, they, and there are different types of beasts. Well, they're actually both those visions are speaking about the same thing. They're speaking of, about the major kingdoms of the world leading up to the appearance of Christ. That stone is Christ and His kingdom coming and, and knocking against the kingdoms of this world. But there are two very different vision, one, visions. One's a statue and one's all these beasts. But they're the same thing. There's these cycles of visions. Revelation is the same way. It, it is full of different cycles. So that's a really important point I want you to get. As you go through, we're going to see cycles. I'm going to talk more about it as we go. So as we read through Revelation, we look for clues to the different vision cycles. We look for different phrases, different things happening that are parallel to each other. And so as you look through the book of Revelation, you'll see, cited often, where John will say, then I saw, or then I heard. That's giving you a clue that he's entering into a new vision cycle. He's seen something. Often it's something new and different. 
than what he's seen previously. And it's not necessarily connected to the previous one chronologically. Just like Daniel's picture of the statue is not chronological with the beast. They're actually parallel historically. He's seen two different visions at different times that have to do with the same time period. So if we look through Revelation, we'll see John saying, then I saw, then I heard. He actually says that 80 times throughout Revelation. He's seeing and hearing things uh, that are visions, that are pictures that God gives. Uh, to him, he's seeing them visibly. But they are pictures, they are images of, of certain things. So we look through for those sort of clues. We look uh, through Revelation for similarities in what's going on. Diff- the same phrases or similar aspects to the storyline. And there's many examples of this. One is you'll see repeated celebrations of God's people throughout Revelation. These celebrations of God's final judgment and final salvation. You'll see that repeated through these different cycles. Um, I would submit there are seven different cycles of visions in Revelation. I'm going to show you a chart on that uh, shortly. So if you were to look, we have a number of verses to put up and we'll go through quickly. Uh, There are these seven cycles of the celebration of God's people in the final salvation. So Revelation 5, we see it. We're there before the throne. They're before the throne and they're, and it's, uh, they're worshiping the Lord and every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them is saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's a final salvation picture, right? Because everybody, everything in creation is giving Him glory. They're before the throne worshiping and enjoying God. So that's a picture of the very end of things. After the final, salva- final judgment and final salvation have come. That's in Revelation 5. And then we repeat a cycle in the seals. Revelation 7. And there's a celebration there uh, for it says, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We had already looked at this, right? This is the, the, the perfect number and then the countless number representing the same people. It's the people of God at the end of all time. It's another celebration. It's another picture of the end. These are not chronological. It's not like there's different cycles that follow. They're the same. It's repeated again in Revelation 11 as well. The same worship, the same image. Revelation 11, 17-19. And then again in Revelation 19 it's as well. All the same pictures of this final celebration of God's salvation. You'll see judgment comes, final judgment comes, final celebration of salvation. So there are cycles just in that. Um, so if we look through Scripture, we'll see cycles in, that show this. Cycles of His wrath. You can look those up as well. Cycles of judgment on the world. Those happen as well. You'll see these cycles. Similar elements. And if you do that and you work through it, you see I, I would submit seven cycles. So if you could show the next table. Here are seven cycles in Revelation. Um, and so if you look through, you use those clues, you, you use those things I'm talking about, you'll see seven cycles. First is the seven churches in the heavenly throne. Chapters 1 through 5. Then the seven seals. Chapters 6 through 8, verse 5. Then the seven trumpets, where we'll be this morning. 8, 6 through eleven nineteen. Then seven signs or, or pictures of historical things. The seven sign cycle. The woman, the dragon, the first and second beast, the lamb, the 144,000, the three angels, the harvest. There's seven of them. Chapters 12-14. through 14. Then the seven bowls of wrath poured out. Revelation 15-16. through 16. Then there are seven visions where 
where John says, then I saw, then I saw. He says it seven times. So he sees seven different things. You can go through and count them. Revelation 17 through 21. And then the final vision, the, the final climax of it all, the picture of it all summed up in the final salvation. So those are seven cycles. Um, I'm not trying to cram everything into seven. I believe there's seven there. It's a number used in Revelation. Seven connotes perfection, completion. And so there's seven cycles of seven, I think we could say, here to show its, its completion, its perfection. But why? I mean, why do it seven times? It's kind of repetitive, isn't it? And it's actually challenging to preach it too because I could do seven messages that more or less say the same thing. But why? Well, this book originally is given to these seven churches and really all the churches in the early church. And they are living in this world where there's this epic battle. And God wants these churches to understand what's going on and to be shaped and molded in such a way by the truth of Revelation that they are able to follow the Lamb and hold on to the Lamb as He holds on to them and overcome with the Lamb. So there are lessons through the repetition here. And by repeating things and then doing them slightly differently, you bring nuance, you bring teaching, right? Repetition is one of the best teachers. So seven times going through, you're going to get it by the end, hopefully. And you're going to get nuance and differences. So if you go through the seven cycles, you'll see things are slightly different. Let me give you an example. All seven cycles include promises for the saints of God. They all include promises for us that laid out before us. Guys, this is what await, awaits you. As you hold on to Jesus, as you endure by, by following Him, by believing in Him, and following the One who conquers, there's a promise for you at the end. So there's promises given again and again. So we can make a table, the next table if you could show it please, of the seven promises. So if we go through these cycles, and this, there are seven promises first, and it, these are either implicit or explicit, so the first one is the promise of His complete reign. The reign of the Lamb and the One who's on, and the Father on the throne. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we're with them, enjoying them, worshiping them forever in perfect joy. So the promise of, of the heavenly throne, us being there with Him. Now remember, backing up, these are seven churches that are feeling oppressed. They're feeling left out. They're struggling. And, and they're being told you're nothing. And now God's saying, no, you're in the throne room. You're with Me. Forever. So the, this promise of being with Him in the throne room. Second one. This is in the seven seals. The, there's a promise of the perfect and limitless number of saints. That, that God's in control of who's there. It's the perfect number, but it's also a countless number. So you might feel beleaguered and oppressed. You might feel like you're a little church of 20 people struggling in your city. But guys, I've got the perfect number and it's going to be ultimately countless. Third promise. Amidst the trumpets. The reward and fruitfulness in witnessing. We'll get to that after this today's message, the next part in the series. There's a reward and fruitfulness in being faithful witnesses. The next one emits the seven signs, historical uh, things. There's the blessed rest from our labors. There's a promise of rest. There will be rest. Life can be hard. It can be hard to be faithful, to endure, to deal with the oppression of the world and, and so forth. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But there will be rest from your labors. Amidst the seven bowls, promise of reward for readiness. Amidst the seven visions, the promise of God performing justice against evil enemies. And of course, the final vision, there's the promise of the full 
glorious salvation of God. So these are just the seven promises. And so you can see those are all different aspects, right? So you're getting all different aspects of what it means, what the reward looks like. And it's being reinforced, it's being strengthened, it's being broadened as you go through Revelation. It reinforces these lessons as we're called through these cycles to trust in God to work out justice, to address injustice. As we live for this final reward, as we understand, we're reinforced the importance of being a faithful witness, remaining pure, holding on to the Lord, not compromising with the world, right? When we looked at those seven churches, that was a major problem for most of the churches. They were compromising. There were people in the church who were compromising. They were giving in because it was easier, it seemed, just to give in to the world rather than to stand against it. So there's reinforced who here is, guys, don't do that. This is, this is what the world looks like. This is where the world meets its end. Don't get on that bus. Live this way. That gets reinforced as we go through, through this. We understand that the, the ways and the end of the world. And when I say the world, I don't mean the created world. I mean the world as humanity and its rebellion against God. So these things get reinforced as we go. Seven cycles. That's part of how these stories get told. Maybe in heaven there will be 2,000 or more movies about Revelation and what God has done. I think we'll go on forever. But for now we have this wonderful book which is complete and sufficient for us to help us understand the richness and the depth of this epic battle. And as we go through, I trust God will help us understand, help us be transformed by it. So let's move into this week's section. Uh, chapter 8, verse 6 and following. If you want to be there in your Bible, I'm going to read. We're going to look. We're going to understand how these cycles and see how these cycles work. And then we'll, uh, we'll take some time to make observations and applications. So hang on to your seats. Things get pretty wild in this section. Chapter 8, verse 6 and following. It says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had become bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe! Woe! Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. 
He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders and of their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. God's Word from Revelation 8. And nine. Pretty intense stuff going on there. This is one of the cycles and there are lessons for us in here. Just to note, first off, these, these different judgments that are coming actually align fairly well each judgment individually with the sorts of judgments in the book of Exodus. Um, you can actually go through these different seven judgments and line them up with some of the plagues that came to Egypt. So if you could show that table. The first Judgment, there's hail and fire. Well, that was the seventh plague in Exodus. The next one, the sea turns to blood. One third of the living creatures die. Well, the first plague, the Nile turns to blood. The fish die. The third, the rivers and springs are made bitter by wormwood. And among the first one, the rivers, the canals filled with blood were made bitter through that. The next, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. In the ninth plague, there's darkness over the land of Egypt. 
The fifth, there's locusts like scorpions. The ninth and eighth plagues, there's darkness and locusts as well. The sixth one, there, there's these troops released where a third of mankind is killed. Well, this might parallel to the, the angel of death. Um, and then, of course, in the seventh one, we'll get to that next time, there's an angel wrapped in cloud, a cloud with legs like pillars of fire. So there's the hinting at pillar of fire and pillar of cloud like the exodus out of Egypt. So there are parallels, uh, as there are throughout Scripture, parallels here with the judgments against Egypt. Well, what does that do in thinking about these things? Well, how did those, and why did those judgments come against Egypt? They were God's rescue plan for His people who were under the false gods and, and the culture formed by the worship of false gods in Egypt. They were oppressed under that. And when God brought those plagues, they were statements by God that those things are not gods. They're false gods. And your culture built around that is a house of cards. And I'm going to blow on the house of cards and it's going to blow down. That's what goes on amidst the plagues in Egypt. God blows on the house of cards with the plagues and, and says, I'm the Lord. And each of the plagues speak against even false deities in Egypt and against the whole culture. And God proclaims His supremacy and His goodness. And through the means of those judgments, He provides rescue for His, for his people out of that culture. That's what John is hinting at here through these different plagues. The same idea. These judgment cycles are God's way of saying, guys, the world is corrupt. It follows false gods. It's a house of cards. And I'm letting it stand for now, but I will come and I will blow on that house of cards and blow it down and demonstrate that, it, that it's built on no solid foundation. And there is no solid foundation except Jesus Christ, the, the true God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's what He's doing through Revelation. That's what He's demonstrating. There are lessons in that, right? Aren't there lessons there for us, for the church? Don't put your hope in the world. And for all who aren't yet believers as well, don't put your hope in the world. Put your hope in God. And so, so these judgments and what we see in Exodus as well is, are, are things that actually did happen or will happen. And again, going through Revelation, they speak to things that that have happened throughout the church and finally will happen at the end. But through that, there are lessons. It's interesting just to look through and, and, and understand some of the particulars here. It can be difficult to know when they apply. And, and we don't want to get caught up in trying to figure out what time period. I, I don't think that's the intention of Revelation for us to kind of look through and say, well, it was exactly this time that this happened. But that doesn't mean we don't use good common sense to apply it when it makes sense. It ultimately applies throughout the church age to the final time. But it also must apply to the early church. Because repeated throughout Revelation, the phrase, this will soon take place, is stated. So there's, there's teaching for the church, the early church. And it looks, as we look through here, that there are correlations in these judgments to God's judgment on Rome and on the religious establishment in Israel. So the fall of uh, Jerusalem and the Roman civil wars do seem to correlate in different ways. Let me just kind of give you some of those. And again, don't misunderstand me. I don't, I'm not saying it's entirely about this, but it does apply. For instance, as we read through, we saw these, these locusts, these demon locusts. So these are actually representing demons. They torment for five months, it says. So when you see stuff like that, why five months? Why would it say five months? Why not six? Why not something else? Why is it five months? 
Well, first we know that the locust season in the Mediterranean at the time was about five months. It went from April through September. So it might just simply be that that's how locusts uh, tormented. It was a five-month season, so that's why it says it. But also, if we look historically, we'll realize that the siege of Jerusalem lasted from April to September. The same time as the season for locusts. And if we observe what happened historically during those five months, the, uh, the siege was horrific. And those who remained in the city came under terrible oppression. Uh, there's records of what went on in that, in that time period. Uh, Josephus, who was a contemporary historian, talks about the siege. I actually have a quote. If you could put that up. The next one, please. Uh, from Josephus describing what went on inside Jerusalem. It said, he says, Then did the famine... So they were, they, were, they were hungry. They were starved out. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children dying by famine. And the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplace like shadows, all swelled with famine, and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. Thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse every day. And indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench which was a hindrance to those who would make sallies out of the city to fight the enemy. Num the number of those that perished by famine in the city was prodigious and their miseries were unspeakable. For if so much as a shadow of any kind of food did anywhere appear, a war was commenced presently and the dearest friends fell a-fighting one another with it. it. It got horrible in the city. There was starvation, there was horror of the siege going on, and there was fighting. They were fighting and killing each other in the city. There were these different parties, and there was hatred. And it's really it's a picture of, of spiritual oppression inside the city going on. At the same time, a, a large group of Roman soldiers really came for the siege, came across the Euphrates. There's a large army, multiple legions of Roman soldiers came to invade uh, Israel and to besiege Jerusalem. So it looks like there's a correlation between these demon locusts and the massive army and what went on in the fall of Jerusalem. Um, by the way, just you may know this, the Jewish Christians, the ones with the mark on their forehead, genuine believers, fled Jerusalem before any of this happens. Because Jesus had told us in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, flee to the hills. Well, historically we know the early Christians, when they saw the Roman armies coming in the early part of the, this, the war, uh, the rebellion of, of the Jewish nation at that time, the early part they saw, and as, a, as they gathered around Jerusalem, the abomination of desolation would have been their idols, which they carried on banners and so forth. When they saw that near Jerusalem, they got out of the city and fled to the hills, to Pella. That's a known fact. Uh, so the Christians weren't there. And if you read in Revelation here, uh, the affliction is coming on people who have not put their faith in Jesus. Uh, the others are protected. Well, that does seem to line up. Now, again, not, not to get caught up in that, and I would not submit and say that this is entirely about that, but it does correlate. And it would have helped the early church to understand that these judgments, even on Rome and on the Jewish establishment and rebellion against God, not believing Jews, but unbelieving Jews, is God's judgment against His people's enemies. And, and for them to understand and we see throughout history these sorts of patterns. So whether it was 
the siege of Jerusalem, or the invasion that came later on from the Mongols, or the Muslims, or the Turks, or the Crusaders, or the Nazis. This is a pattern in Scripture that goes on. With, with God releasing mankind to the consequences of our sin, there's spiritual oppression and militaristic oppression that comes to us. Yet God is for us. He's with us. And we can trust Him in this. Amidst these cataclysms, His people are designated and kept safe. Well, let's look at, in conclusion actually, look at one more section. Verses 20 and 21 at the end. And I think this is really the main point for application for us. Look what it says. It says, so all these terrible things happen. And then it says the rest of mankind, so there's a third of, of mankind that's affected here. Um, it says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. You see that? They did not repent. Can you imagine? They've seen horrific things happen. They've seen their world fall apart. They've seen oppression, spiritual oppression, spiritual evil and darkness. They've seen terrible warfare. They've seen all these things and yet, in the face of all this, they're holding all the more tightly to the things of this world. Now, I don't mean the things, created things, are evil in themselves, but when we hold on to the things without God at the center, that's idolatry. God created all things. They're good in their creation. They're meant to be used as means of enjoyment and worship of God and blessing to others. So, I'm not talking in some Gnostic way that we should not love and enjoy His creation. But when we hold those things... Apart from God, that's idolatry. And so, all these things happen. They only hold more tightly. And they refuse to give up the things of this world. It it's, should strike us as incredibly odd. I, uh, I watched Stranger Things recently. Again, I'm not recommending you watch it or not, but there are many redemptive themes in the Stranger Things series. One thing I noted though as I watched this series is there was no positive mention of God. It was interesting. There was only taking the Lord's name in vain and so forth. And, but there was no positive mention of God. And if you're familiar with the series, and sorry, I don't mean to tempt you if you don't like horror, but it's redemptive. Um, in the series, there's these terrible things happening. There's, these, there's this gargantuan shadow monster that's like swallowing people up. It's awful. There are these demon dogs running around with shark-like teeth, you know, attacking people. And, and as I watched, I thought, you know what? If, if that, I mean, never, that's never going to happen that way. But if I were there... And if most people were there, at least I think Americans or Westerners, you'd be praying all the time. You'd be like, help Lord! This is awful! Rescue us, right? Wouldn't anybody do that? I mean, you don't have to be a believer in Jesus. You would be doing that. And as I watched, I'm like, this is just really odd. There's no positive mention of God at all. That would never happen that way, at least in our culture. Well, this passage is that way too. It should strike us as odd. It's like, there are these terrible things happening. And they're not running to God. They're not putting their faith in God. They're not crying out to God. There's no repentance. That's insanity. Is really what it is. To, to be in that place where you're losing everything. Everything's coming unraveled. And to not run to God, that's the heart of foolishness. You and I would never do something like that. Would we? Well, I think the reality is we would, right? Left to ourselves, we can follow in the same insanity. 
Left to ourselves, we would think that somehow we can survive these sorts of things. We can be just like the people in the story. There's a warning there. warning for all of us, whether we are people who trust in Jesus or not yet trust in Him or still exploring. And by the way, if you're in that category, we're glad you're here. We think this is a great place to be to explore and to, to do that in the context of people that love and respect you. There's a lesson here in the, the stark statement that they do not repent. And we can be blind to the warning signs. This book and the Bible is full of warnings for us that are meant for our good. Back in 1969 in Mississippi, there were a number of residents of an apartment complex, Reachlow Manor Apartments in past Christian Mississippi on the coast. There were, I think, about 30 residents who were there, and there was a hurricane approaching. That hurricane's name was Camille. And they were in that complex, and, and they decided to stay and weather the storm. They did that because they had been in another hurricane a few years ago, and, and the only thing that happened is they got a little bit of water on the first floor. So they decided to stay. They thought, we can, we can weather this storm. So they boarded up windows and they figured, well, let's get up to a third-story apartment because, you know, if we get some water, we'll be safe. And if you could put the first picture of the apartment complex. There's the apartment complex. Little did they know that Hurricane Camille was going to come ashore that night with a storm surge of 24 feet. And that apartment complex is just about on the beach there. Not only with a storm surge of 24 feet, but winds of over 200 miles per hour. The entire complex was wiped out. Next picture, please. It was a miracle that anyone survived. Those that made it were either rescued by Navy CBs, but one man I know of somehow was washed away and washed into a tree, he clung to the tree through those 200 mile per hour winds somehow and made it. They should never have been in those apartments. For one reason or another, they didn't heed the warnings. And the storm came. Guys, there's a storm approaching way worse than any hurricane. It's the storm of final judgment. God is amazingly patient, but He's good. And in His goodness, He must address the evil of this world. He must address the evil of our own hearts as well. In His goodness. He's been patient. He waits a lifetime. He he waits generation after generation. Thousands of years at times before He does anything. But He will do something because He's good and He's just. And the reality is that left to ourselves in the face of the storm, we have no ground to stand on. Left to ourselves, if we honestly look at our own hearts before a perfectly good and holy, generous, faithful God, and we examine our hearts honestly and see that we have rebelled against Him and run away from Him, we have failed to love Him fully, we have failed to love each other, we have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves, we have failed to 
do what is obvious and right. That He is right to judge us. He is right to sweep us away in that storm. And for us to live eternally separated from Him. That's the worst thing that could happen to us is to be swept away in the storm of His justice and judgment and holy wrath and live forever away from Him in darkness. That's the reality. And this book is a warning to us that the storm is coming. But there's good news. There's good news in the book of Revelation throughout the book that there's a rescue. There's a rescue better than the Navy Seabees. It's Jesus Christ who has come and He has weathered the storm Himself. He's come into our storm. He's come and lived among us. He lived the perfect righteous life and then He went to the cross and He bore on that cross the holy justice of God in Himself for our sin. He paid that penalty. He absorbed it all on the cross. And if we run to Him, we are safe from the storm. We're forgiven. We're rescued. And we're in Him counted as if we had lived His righteous life with all of its rewards, all of its blessings. That's what we have in Jesus. We have a rescue from the storm. And the lesson of Revelation is about living in Him and living in His rescue and not trying to make our way in the world. See, this is not just a lesson for those who have yet to put their faith in Jesus. This is a lesson for believers because those early churches were full of compromise. And the church throughout time has been under pressure to compromise. And this is saying, guys, if you want to, if you want to be counted among the world and its pleasures, you will be counted among the world and its miseries. If you think compromise is a way to go, you're going to find yourself cut off from the Lord eventually and swept away. So, don't do it. Don't compromise. Don't fall into the ways of the world. Don't fall into this way of living where, where you treat the things of God as if they're ends in themselves. But instead, learn to live by faith. Receive the forgiveness we have in Jesus. Live in His new life. Learn to enjoy the things of the world as ways and means to worship Him and to bless others. Don't compromise with the world which says, I want God's creation, but without God. Because there may be fleeting pleasures with that, but in the end there will be eternal misery. So as the band comes up and we close, let's examine our own hearts and ask, is there any compromise going on in my life? Any way that I'm compromising with the world and the pleasures of this world? Any way that I'm seeking relief from the pressures of life and things that are idolatrous rather than the Lord Himself. And certainly, if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, I just encourage you to do that. It's simple. It's straightforward. Just turn. Turn away from those other things and turn to Jesus. Say yes to Jesus and no to the world. Let me pray and then we'll, Mike will transition us. Lord, we thank You